It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So begins Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And as Dickens here relates, so we see in Acts 8 and in our own day, a tale of two responses to the message of Christ. Call it true and false conversion, if you will. Both existing at once in extremes, intermingled yet parallel, with no middle ground. This is the picture the Holy Spirit paints through Luke's pen in the account of Philip's converts in Acts 8. The core reality kind of jumps out as we look at this as a whole. It's simply this. Saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. Saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. Saving faith is a state of the heart, not a statement of the mouth. True conversion springs from a reborn heart. As we see these things, we need to recognize that the hallmark of true conversion is inner transformation. It's not just what we say or the clothes we wear, or the church we go to, the denomination we belong to. It's an in internal change, a rebirth. Notice this, receiving Christ is more than just wanting His benefits and fearing judgment. Receiving Christ is more than just wanting His benefits, though. It's not simply that. There's nothing wrong with coming to Christ because you desire heaven. But at some point, we have to mature past that. And it's more than just fearing judgment. There's nothing wrong with fearing judgment. We should. We should fear judgment. We should fear God. But at some point, we need to mature past that. Receiving Christ is more than just wanting His benefits and fearing judgment. It's joyfully embracing God's grace given to us at the cross. You can't judge a book by its cover. We have two covers that look very similar in this passage. And yet the book is very, very different. But as we look at these two different responses, when we get past the similar appearance of the cover to actually look at the book, there are two parallels or two contrasts that we'll be able to see here. First, Simon knew the power of celebrity. The Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. Simon had gained his notoriety through his own skills, so to speak. And as he did this, he gained power among the people. He became somebody, as he called himself, really important. He thought he was special because the people would follow him. As we think of this Ethiopian eunuch, think in terms of the, the treasury secretary. This is an important guy. He's with this chariot with a staff manned, manning that chariot who report to him. He understands authority. The Ethiopian eunuch is an actual authoritative person. He gets it. So he's not overly moved by powerful demonstrations or emotional experiences. So when Philip comes to him, he doesn't even need to bring signs and wonders. Simon knew the power of celebrity. 
the Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. Notice also another contrast between them. Simon was awed by the power of God's message. The Ethiopian was convicted by the truth of God's message. Simon was awed by the power of God's messengers. The Ethiopian was convicted by the truth of God's message. Acts chapter 8, verse 17. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, all right, buddy, here we go. He offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, of course he did. This is the guy that knows the power of celebrity. He's awed by the works that they're doing. He wants this power so that he can essentially continue in what he had been doing for some time, practicing sorcery. The Ethiopian, on the other hand, was convicted by the truth of God's message. Here's the passage the eunuch was reading in verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The Ethiopian, sitting with Philip, receiving the explanation, was able to connect the dots. A man of authority who sees here in this suffering servant something dramatically different. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. What happened was he saw the scriptures and he realized that Jesus the Messiah, as Philip was explaining it, Jesus the Messiah, the King of glory, putting on flesh, took my stripes on his back. And his first response is, I got to give him myself. And he chooses to be baptized. Simon and the Ethiopian both did the same thing in response at least on the outside. They both saw the gospel and chose to be baptized. They both had the outer sign, the initiation rite of joining the church, identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ and his body. Only one of them actually was reborn. Dramatic difference between the two. Simon knew the power of celebrity. The Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. Simon was awed by the power of God's messengers. The Ethiopian was convicted by the truth of God's message. He was convicted in that he saw his own sinfulness separating him from a holy God. That was particularly probably poignant for him. He's in Jerusalem as an Ethiopian to worship. Jews worship in Jerusalem. Those who worship Yahweh. Why would he be there? Well, he couldn't actually have been a full proselyte because eunuchs were banned from that, according to Deuteronomy 18. They couldn't enter the temple. They couldn't be a full part of of, uh, the nation's worship. They were recognized as being not whole, and God is holy and required perfection. So when Philip shares with him that there is a way that Jesus has torn the temple veil, that all may enter in, that all, even those who are separated by the law from God, which is all of us, even though it was clear for him, it's all of us. That must have resonated with him. 
he, as a God-fearing Gentile, saw the truth of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's why he's searching in Isaiah. That's why he's in Jerusalem to worship. Now he's on his way back home. He's not apparently Jewish by birth, but Ethiopian. He can't fully join the people of Israel as a Jew. He can't worship in the temple, so he had to go to Jerusalem and worship as an outsider. And yet he still did. A man of authority who humbles himself enough to come and worship as an outsider. Now hearing there is a way that you can be one with God. Powerful impact, powerful conviction, not by powerful experiences and emotions, but by the truth of God's message. Let's wrap this up with some principles for us to look at today. We're going to take a look at true and false. Not a quiz, but just an indication. There is such a thing as a false conversion. There is such a thing as saying all the right things and not actually having Christ in you. Jesus gave a parable. Turn to the book of Matthew. I won't have you stay there long, but I want you to see it. This is where we will we'll wrap up in a few moments, so I want to go ahead and jump to it. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 13. Jesus speaking. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they're ferocious wolves. They look like sheep. They look like believers. Inside, they're anything but. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The next verse is our memory verse for, th for today. It fits into the, the central context of what Jesus is saying here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He just said, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Did we not minister for you, God? Did we not go on short-term mission trips? Did we not give money to the poor? Did we not wear Christian t-shirts and have real-life bumper stickers on our cars? And drink from something real podcast mugs? Lord, we'd done all the things. I went to youth group. I went to Bible camp. I was in a Bible study when I was in college. I had a cross around my neck. Verse 23 is his response. And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. 
The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus has called us to truth. He has always given this picture of the difference between truth and falsehood, what is comfortable and what is real, what is desirable to the flesh, and what is given by God's Spirit. In Matthew 13, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus tells us part of this parable uh, of, of what the kingdom is like, that the kingdom of heaven, I'll read it for you, verse uh, 24 and following, Jesus told him another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect all the weeds, or first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat, bring it into my barn. Older translations will often refer to those weeds as tares. Tares are a type of, it's also called darnel, it's a type of like a rye grass that looks like wheat in its early stages, but it isn't. And so what Jesus is saying here is there are tares among the wheat, and you don't know the difference. But at the final harvest, it will become clear. And the great harvester, or the harvesters here as he refers to angels, at this great harvest, it'll get sorted out. And those who look like wheat but are not will be burned. And the true wheat will be gathered in. All right. To our points, I'll move quickly here. First off, that which appeals to the flesh is of the flesh. That which appeals to the flesh is of the flesh. In Romans 8, we learn that, that the spirit and the flesh are in contrast. They're against one another. There's hostility. The mind that is governed by sinful flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God. It can't submit to God, which is why Jesus went so far as to say no one can even repent. We can't even come to Him until the Father draws them not in us. But Simon is a picture of what we do today. Very often, we want ministry that appeals to the flesh. We want the coolest, the slickest, the best. We want everything to fit right, to look right, to be the right amount of time. To have just the right illustrations. We have churches today that are like rock concerts or big youth conventions. Smoke, light shows, rock and roll, preachers with squirt guns on stage. That's all fun and games. But we miss the point of the church. I think this is one of the reasons so many youth ministries fail. They get big. They gain crowds not unlike Simon gained crowds in Samaria. And we wonder why so many people, seven out of ten high school graduates, leave the church when they leave home. Seven out of ten. From your youth group, who go off to college and they leave the faith. Now, three of them statistically will end up coming back at some point. But why? Why is it not taking root 
when Jesus talked about the parable of the soils in Mark chapter 4, I think it was 4, it's in Mark, it's written down on your program. When Jesus talked about the, the parable of the soils, there were seeds that were sown that grew up quickly because the sh- soil was shallow. So when it was sunny and the rains fell and it was great, they grew up quickly. They didn't make it because they didn't have roots. That which appeals to the flesh is of the flesh. If you find a ministry that is overly concerned with trying to get you hooked with gimmicks, run. That which appeals to the flesh is of the flesh. The flesh is driven by the sensory things. Things that appeal to our five senses. Experiences, feelings, emotions. If you have preachers or musicians trying to manipulate your emotions, not, there's not that there's anything wrong with emotions or feeling. <laughs> I see the band here looking at me like I'm crazy because they know that I cry almost every time we get together. I'm a big baby. Brad Clark, I'm such a baby, the dolphins make me cry. But as we are going through this life, if we don't have roots, if all we have is experience appealing to the flesh, then the Spirit isn't taking hold in us. That's not a ministry that comes from the Lord. That which appeals to the flesh is of the flesh. Next, notice, God calls us beyond what is natural to what is real. God calls us beyond what is natural to what is real. What's natural? Sin. Romans 3.23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. It's in us. Paul, a little later on in, in Romans 5, 6, 7, 6 and 7 in particular, shows this, this depth of it that all of us have sin that we inherited from Adam, and we can't even get away from it when we're writing Scripture like Paul. We're hooked. We're stained. We're corrupted. What is natural to us is a real problem because our natural selves, our flesh, are bound over to sin. That's true for all of us. We don't see clearly. We need the Holy Spirit to remove the scales from our eyes and what the the Spirit does in us mortifies, puts to death our flesh. I don't know if you recognize this or not, but there's nothing comfortable about mortification. There's nothing comfortable about dying. There's nothing comfortable when the Spirit comes in and your eyes are so used to darkness that that's all you know, you don't even realize it's dark anymore, and the bright holiness of God's glory shines into you. It's not comfortable. But God has called us beyond what is natural to what is real. The idea that I was just born this way Whatever my particular proclivity is, we use that a lot these days with LGBTQ uh, issues. But we've been saying the same thing forever. If it feels good, do it. This is just how I'm made. If God didn't want me like this, then God wouldn't have made me like this. But God didn't call us to be natural, to do what seems to come naturally. He called us to be supernatural, to belong to Him, to be saved and transformed by the Spirit in us. He calls us beyond what is natural to what is real. Next notice, finding life means dying to self. Finding life means dying to self. We're called to put to death the deeds of the the flesh, the misdeeds of the flesh. These 
dark parts of us, the sinfulness that is natural to us, all of our urges unrestrained take us directly to hell. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it only leads to death. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us a picture of what that life looks like. Starting with verse 16, Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, along with Simon's sorcery. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, referring to wild parties, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's not a matter of repressing it, holding it in. It's not a matter of trying to, to squash it down and I need some conversion therapy to try and fix it. There is no cure. There is no fix for your behavior. There is only death and rebirth in Christ. Those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Finding life means dying to self. Last, well, almost last. The true, the true and the false may appear to walk together, but their destinations are very different. The true and the false, speaking of our conversions, may walk may appear to walk together, but their destinations are vastly different. As Jesus said, with the, the tares and the wheat, just let them grow together. They might look the same, difference, but God knows. And in the end, it will come to fruition. In fact, that's our last point. God knows those who are His. Truth will out. God knows those who are His. Truth will out. Truth will become public. It will out itself. Shakespeare liked that particular thought. It's an old saying. It's an old thought. And the truth hasn't changed. Not everything is known in the moment, but eventually will be revealed. You might think that that person next to you is a believer and they're not. You might think perhaps that they are not and they are, but ultimately their fruit will show and it will come out. You might doubt them because of your own prejudices. You may doubt them because they don't fit into your particular mold. But we will see in the long run the truth come out. The cream separates from the way. And as we see the acts of the flesh, of the sinful nature, come out in a person, there's an indicator of what kind of tree that is. As we see the fruit of the Holy Spirit come out in a person, there's an indicator of what kind of tree that is. But rest assured, what you and I may not know, God always knows. 
This is why we don't spend our time trying to sort out everybody's personal convictions. I will say with chagrin and pain that I've baptized many over the years who at this point are not on the road to heaven. They said all the right things, we had all the right conversations, but they were tares, not wheat. But it's not my job to pull up the tares just to continue to sow, to continue to do all I can to develop the wheat for God to harvest because it's His field. The Lord knows who are His, and the truth will out. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of the Father? Is it keeping the law? No, the scripture is pretty clear about that. The law gives us a picture of how far we are away from the will of the Father. But nobody's saved or made right by keeping the law. Largely because we can't. What is the will of the Father? The fruit of of conversion is what we're talking about. When, when Jesus says, you're going to say, Lord, Lord, but you're not one of mine. He's not saying that doing the will of the Father causes you to be converted. He's saying that when you are converted, you will do the will of the Father. It's the fruit, not the root. What's the first thing that we can see? The greatest command. We read it earlier in Deuteronomy. Jesus uh, said it in Matthew 22. What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he went so far as to say the second is like it, expresses it. You know that you're doing the first well when you're showing it by doing the second, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the will of the Father. This is what Christians do. Simon did not love the Lord more than he loved the power. He loved the power of the Lord. If we're going to do the will of the Father, if we're going to belong to Him, if you want to know which one you are, you need to let go of all the trappings and give everything to Him. What is the will of the Father? 2 Peter 2.9 says, it's the will of the Father that all should come to repentance. You want to know if you're doing the will of the Father? Turn from your way to His way. Repentance. Romans 10.9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord. Remember, there's a difference between confession and profession. If I speak out with my mouth what is in my heart, and my heart believes that, he, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if I do that and I am saved, it will show up in Romans 12, 1 and 2 as I make myself a living sacrifice. In other words, I'm not living for me anymore. Like Paul said in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live but Christ living in me. You make yourself a living sacrifice. And you don't let yourself be pushed into the mold of the world anymore. Instead, you're transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit as you renew your mind with God's Word. And then you will know and you will cling to God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Understand that saving faith involves a confession of the heart not merely a profession of the mouth. Not everybody who wears the jersey is on the team. Make sure that you're on the team. Don't worry about trying to pull out tears. Somebody else's walk is not your, your job. 
They answer to God for themselves. But make sure that you're not going through the motions of saying with your mouth something that your heart does not believe. We need to see Christ as most precious. When we cling to Him, we are truly saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we close out our service today, it is our prayer that You would change our hearts, that You would clean out those dirty places that we've held back. Father, we pray that You would cause us to be like Christ, that You would change us from the inside out, that our our worship would be more than songs, more than words. It would be a surrender to You. Ah, Lord, You know we don't do it perfectly. None of us do. Teach us, however, to own our dependence on You. To recognize our sinfulness and our frailty. And to turn all of it over to You, trusting that You are good. Father, help us not to be constantly chasing after experiences or special knowledge, demonstrative powers. Rather, Lord, help us to be convicted by the truth of Your message, of the good message that You loved us so much that You sent Your Son to die for us. Lord, make us those who do Your will from the very depths of our souls choosing you above all else. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.